Are you conscious of your addiction? Refuse to be defined by it? Not satisfied with living your life on the surface? Are you drawn to deeper meaning and purpose? And believe that it's possible to grow through your addiction to experience true freedom? Well, welcome home. Share the journey from addiction to freedom with your host, Michael Gregory. Welcome back to another episode of Addiction to Freedom. Today I have a very special guest, a very lovely lady, Catherine Woodward-Thomas. She is a psychotherapist, um, she's a, a teacher, a coach, and a mentor to many, particularly around the conscious, she's actually coined the term conscious uncoupling, and also has um, a revised book Calling in the One, and we had just a really, really uh, lovely conversation, mostly about the process of, of learning to love. And I really think you'll get a lot out of this. So I really encourage you to, to listen to the end. And um, I certainly, I'll certainly be doing that again. So enjoy the interview. So, I mean, I've really been looking forward to meeting with you, Catherine. It's, and it's taken us a little while to actually get here few hiccups along the way, mostly on my side. <laughs> but and I know you're very, very busy. So thank you for you know taking time out to talk to me and 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 also, you know, anyone who's going to watch this or, or hear our conversations. I really appreciate that. Of course, it's my joy. Really lovely to meet you. Mm, lovely to meet you too. And I'm not sure, you know, how many people know, I think you're the lady who kind of coined the term conscious uncoupling. Is that right? That is right. <laughs> Actually, it was my friend Kit in a conversation in my kitchen where Kit was talking about his unusual divorce from a wife who left him, who he still just loved and just decided to bless her because he loved her so much if she wanted out of the marriage. And as he was describing this unusual separation, he said it was a very conscious uncoupling and i went oh wow oh I, and i said to him immediately oh that's a book we need to write about this yeah. <laughs> so he said do so with my blessings <laughs> and uh, so i started working with it and gwyneth got wind of it and shot it in the lexicon into the lexicon which truthfully michael was such a meaningful moment to me because i came from a very ugly divorce my parents when i was quite young and i think the legacy of the toxic residue from that stayed with me in my early adulthood and showed up as really unfulfilling very painful relational dynamics and so the ability to kind of on a personal level, just harvest all that pain and what I call spin straw into gold, yeah. you know, to be able to make a beautiful offering to the world. The next day after Gwyneth mentioned it uh, or posted it on her website and the press went crazy, it was already in the dictionary as redefining divorce in the 21st century. So that was definitely a pinnacle moment for me where I thought, you know, because I think that's what we're all really striving to do is to take everything ugly, hurtful, disappointing, crushing, and transform it into golden offerings of goodness, love, and beauty, truth. 
So when we when we get there, it kind of repositions all of our personal pain and gives it a purpose that we can live with and then even be grateful for what we went through. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, if we can look at the times where we've struggled and had pain and challenge, often that's taken us outside of what we know into you know things that that we never would have understood and become more richer and, and more complete if we can what i call hit hit our markers hit our what markers choose love i i mean choose love uh-huh. we can get stuck if we get it if we go into victimization resentment you know blame shame which by the way is very very easy to do because if if we feel angry that someone violated our boundaries chances are they did so it's not like it didn't happen but if we if we kind of root down and stop there we're going to be in trouble so i think a lot of us get stuck in the quicksand and we don't hit our markers and then our pain never really makes sense to us cuz we never quite get to the other side and see its purpose. Yeah, yeah. It, like you said, it, it becomes a kind of a residue. It kind of gets encrusted on and and prevents us from actually shining. And what it does is it actually gets us stuck in patterns, mm. kind of underachieving or staying in our addictions, just relapsing back into addictions over and over or never really just never really thriving in the way that we feel hungry to do as though almost like you're living a phantom life and your real life is somewhere out there and you can't quite get to it because the gap is so big. So that's a good framework for this conversation, I guess, what we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah, because you've mentioned addiction there. And I know uh, before we started this the recording, we talked about the broader, you know, I guess broader perspective of addiction, not just the obvious, you know, drug addictions or more popularized versions. But but you've kind of mentioned it there in terms of, you know, addicted to patterns. Joe Dispenza has a book, and I I love the name of this book: Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, we get kind of addicted to who we know ourselves to be, and uh, how you know, and then and then and then trying to sort that out because obviously it causes us pain very mm. often to be who we know ourselves to be habitually. But we we kind of go back into the past and we even analyze, and a lot of us have done that work now. You know, we've connected the dots between what happened way back when and how we are now. But then again. We get stopped by being at the effect of that, by being victimized by our narcissistic mother, our absent father, our abusive older sibling, or whatever it was. And then we might forgive them, but then we're kind of victimized by our own unconscious that internalized that. So it's actually a really big deal to step out of victimization. And I will say that in my life, the person who really influenced me to even begin thinking this way was Bill W. I don't know him. Who, who oh, is Bill he? Wilson, who founded AA. Oh, okay, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill W is what we call him okay. here in the so United States. Who, 
so you you have a real kind of history there of really of dealing you know going into your own stuff i guess we we could say yeah did, did you yeah. want to share that, um, any of your story well i think i started by sharing a little bit about the toxic divorce and the hatred mm. and the parental alienation and and all of that mm. and but you know basically i was born in the 50s when nobody really understood the impact of children of things like parental alienation or leaving them home alone you know locked in the house for hours because one parent had to work now because one parent household so all the things that you know many of us have actually been through and how that outpictured for me was an eating disorder I mean, it's, you know, complicated, but it escalated and it got quite severe. I come from a family of addicts and my grandpa was an alcoholic. My mother kept marrying alcoholics, so it runs in our family. And I had a very severe addiction, where, which basically meant that I was non-functional. And I remember as I was sitting in 12-step meetings pretty much every day for many years and going to therapy and doing all of that work. But I felt like life was passing me by somehow and that, you know, other people were creating careers or creating families. And here I was, you know, just trying to get abstinent from food addiction and get my life so I could do something other than wait tables or be a temp secretary, which was basically as far as I could go with that addiction. You know, with all due respect for people who are temp secretaries and wait tables because everything you know, every honest wage is a good wage, and, and however one makes a living. So I didn't mean that in any disparaging way. But I had gifts to give that were not coming out. So really, it was through the 12-step program that I began taking personal inventory, being the one who was responsible for my own choices in life, my own actions, my own decisions. And that was a great place to begin. And of course, I since began studying metaphysics and meditation and transformative technologies. I am a psychotherapist myself. So I have a very well-rounded kind of integral perspective on healing. And frankly, it wasn't until I was in my mid-40s or my early 40s, and I'm in my 60s now, just to give you a time frame of my story here. But in my early 40s, where I'd had all these toxic relationships, and I was finally discovering the power of standing for a future, not just analyzing the past, but standing for a future that probably is not going to happen unless you really put your stake in the ground and start up-leveling your game to realize that future. Much like if you know, somebody has to make the decision, I will win the Olympic gold medal. And you can imagine how that repositions who they're being now in the present, that they're going to start to strive to something. So I sat, I, I was a member of this group and I set an intention to be engaged by my 42nd birthday. That was eight months out, no prospects for a husband. It was kind of a an unreasonable intention, to put it nicely. But I I was with people who really understood this principle of living into the possible self of your future instead of just analyzing how you became who you are now and waking yourself up to how much power we're holding to begin developing ourselves, to begin shedding away anything that's inconsistent with that and 
growing in the ways that one would need to in order to manifest and sustain that future. So that was the beginning of calling in the one. Ah, oh, right. Right, so that this was actually how it started. Conscious uncoupling. It yes, it was I mean, in a perfect world we consciously uncouple and then we can call in the one. It's not how mm. most of us do it. We usually have a relationship mm. and then we learn our lessons the hard way. <laughs> and then if we do that well, we have mm. a healthier relationship. Uh, that's really set up to win on the other side. If we don't do it well, we're in danger of not just repeating old dynamics, but probably that that, I mean, statistically, it's interesting because in the States anyway, almost 50%, almost 50% of first marriages end in divorce, but over 60% of second marriages end in divorce and over 70% of third marriages end in divorce. So I think that's because if we don't change, we kind of know that we'll survive a divorce. So maybe we're faster to go there. You know, maybe we we kind of know that we're not going to die from this. And and I think, you know, in our postmodern world, we've all really up-leveled our expectations of having a great life in our 70s, our 80s, our 90s. We're stretching into our 90s, you know, that we could have love and romance and even sex. So we don't give up so easily. Yeah, but it also, that's kind of a little bit shocking in a way that, the second and third marriages have a higher divorce rate. That people, it means that on mass, people aren't actually learning from their previous marriages. I think that's true. Or I think that's just true. Stagnant and, and I then have just, a philosophy okay. on it. Do you? I have, yeah, I do. Okay. So the philosophy is this: that inside the happily ever after myth which is really what we're holding ourselves and each other accountable to. It's the gold standard of relationship, (laughs) which, by the way, was only created 400 years ago when the lifespan was less than 40. Yep. And it was created amongst people who were actually didn't have many options in life. There was no real mobility, and they really had no means. They were kind of an impoverished people in general. So this was kind of created as an escapist fantasy, really. And it went, it went, you know, throughout the culture quite quickly because it's such a feel-good experience. It's such a, it just hits the sweet spot, right? So it was kind of the Netflix of the day is what, it, what I'm saying. So, <laughs> or the, or, or the yeah. masterpiece theater, let's say masterpiece theater since you're in England. But it was, it's become kind of what we hold ourselves accountable to. So anything other than that, any anytime anyone breaks up before somebody dies, we really just drop into this was a failure. Mm. And we drop into shame and we mm. go into blame. And we Mm. get stuck in the blame. Mm. Also, our brains and our bodies are hardwired to stay together, which made sense a thousand years ago, because if you wandered away from your tribe, you probably would die, but we still Mm. feel like we're going to die. Our body is flooded with hormones, fight or flight. Mm. We Mm. easily go to war. We easily create circumstances that kind of get us stuck in incompletion and the hell of incompletion with all this residue of resentment and it's very traumatic 
So people are left ruminating and obsessing, and that's the cyber stalking that someone's doing. You know, that's the hoping and wishing for years that they're going to come to their senses and come back. Or it's just the soulmate to soul hate. You're telling that person off in your head five years later as you're driving down the road. So it's, you know, we're not necessarily, we, we don't know the art of conscious completion. In other words, how do we do this well? We've never been here before where our lifespan is doubled even in the last hundred years. I mean, maybe COVID impacted that. I think we're a little bit set back from that now. But the truth is, is that we live in a really different world right now. And the, and statistically, the majority of us are slated to have two to three very significant relationships in our lifetime. And it's really time that we learned how to do this better. Time does not heal a broken heart, just like time doesn't heal a broken leg. Exactly, because I've, I've experienced this myself where the kind of trauma or from a previous relationship that can kind of get buried and you think you're okay can then start playing out in a new relationship, even though you actually thought that you'd really come to terms with that and you had no resentment, no, you really, you know, kind of were in a good place and with, with the other person and, and yourself, but in really left field ways reactions can occur because the subconscious has gone in and catalogued these signs of possible danger and then the, and reactivity starts and and then if it's usually plugged into the, the other person also has a similar complementary reaction going on and then suddenly that wonderful blissful state starts to kind of get really disordered and, and without any real explanation and, and, and until, you know, until some real understanding of that it's, it's start, started in here. Well, what begins to really break it up is, well, first of all, I've started with, always start with the future. Start where you're going, not with your past. And have the courage to, to say it, not like, well, I want something which is still not stepping into the level of responsibility that's setting an intention to create something. is. So can we create true love? Well, I don't really think so. I mean, I don't have a magic wand, but I can create the conditions for true love. I can take responsibility for all of the parts of me that are actually ambivalent or unhealthy or working against myself covertly or just kind of naive with a lack of skill, like I'll just, you know, do things that kind of sabotage relationship before they even begin in a way, because I just don't know. So I have a lot of say, in other words, I can't, I can't, you know, manipulate God, but I can ante up and say, when I set an intention, what I'm basically saying is I'm willing to be responsible for becoming who I would need to be in order for that intention to happen. And fulfill and then be able to sustain it, the keeping of it, the having of it. So it's a growth journey, and I get quite busy with growing myself in the direction of my dreams. But one of the things that prevents us from even stepping into that, even as a possibility, as much as we want love, for example, you know, we might have a very a lot of evidence to the contrary. No one in my family has ever had healthy love. I've never had a healthy relationship. 
No one's asked me out in five years. You know, all sorts of evidence to the contrary. So how do we even like, I mean, get to the place where we can say, I'm going to set an intention to be engaged by my next birthday. You know, that's kind of a crazy thing to say. But the thing that actually liberates us is to begin to recognize how we are the source of the ongoing patterns that keep duplicating the wounds that we suffered when we were young. And that takes it out of I'm victimized by my own psychology. It's almost like you really have to get that if if your experience is chronic aloneness, that inside of the interpretive lens, I am alone, everyone always leaves me or no one is ever there for me that we will relate to ourselves and others in ways that generate aloneness. So for example, how I was doing this, right? I had one pattern of, uh, I always went out with married men. Now, it's easy psychologically to understand it. My father, when he left, and I didn't see him again until I was an adult, he left partially because he was married to a woman who was insulted that he'd been married and created a baby before with someone else and didn't want any that anything to do with that child. So I was not invited to his home. It was a source of tension in his marriage. So, you know, it's not rocket science to figure out why I keep being attracted to married men and why, you know, all these drama traumas. So some of them, are, you know, we're kind of on to ourselves at this point, <laughs> right? Like it's pretty obvious, but I couldn't break it, even though I knew that, right? I had that psychological insight, but I couldn't change the pattern. This is what changed it for me. I recognized that I had a belief that I was really destined to be alone in this lifetime and never really get my needs met. And that everyone would either leave me or no one would even be there for me to begin with. So when I was out there in the single world looking for love, it never occurred to me that one of my criteria for love might be somebody who has the capacity to love me, to love me back, because I had no expectation that somebody would actually show up for me. So it left me wide open and vulnerable to that pattern. And it wasn't until I said, wait a minute. First of all, it wasn't just a behavioral intervention. I had to deal with my own consciousness. The part of me that was, you know, inside the I'm alone story, maybe she's 10. But here I am, a grown woman. And as a grown woman who's spiritually savvy and connected and psychologically sophisticated, I can really own that I was not born to be alone and that I have the power to grow myself capable of happy, healthy love, right? So that's the truth. And then from there, I say, and one of the things I need to now grow is the healthy expectation that somebody is capable of really being there for me before I open my heart or invite someone into my bed. So in many ways, we're all kind of a little remedial with the places where we've been wounded. But once I understand that, now I'm hopeful. Oh, now I know the roadmap. Oh, maybe I really could do this. And that's what I mean. We want to start being oriented to who would I need to be in order to be engaged. And you'd also be kind of, you know, you'd be noticing whether or not 
the people you're meeting are actually there for you. Whereas in the past, perhaps yeah. that wasn't a criteria, so it didn't matter no. whether they weren't there for you. No, so you, as a matter of fact, it heightened my yearning when they weren't. Yeah. And then it was a game. I had to get them. I had right. to convince them to leave, which, of course, was a horrible thing to want because you're, look, it's, you know, I mean, look, it's a very immoral thing. We do, you know, I think of myself as a moral person, but I, I think good people do not good, such good things sometimes. And I actually caused a lot of suffering, a lot to myself, but a lot to others as well. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously, you know, it's, it's not something that you set out to do, but, you know, as blind, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. You're blind to what you don't know and the consequences occur. But, um, you know, the wonderful thing is obviously I can see from uh, just talking to you that you're growing light years beyond that, you know, and that is a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. You know, and it's very hopeful for anyone to see that. I remember when I was doing my own my own work and that after a few years I started to think, is there ever any end to this? And it's one of the reasons I started to kind of branch out and create my own methods because I think that there's an assumption in the way that we're working that if I just go back and can heal the past enough that I will suddenly have access to a different kind of present and a different kind of future. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if that's necessarily true either. It's not to discount that the usefulness of becoming aware of how things occurred, but I agree with you. I don't think it's necessarily 100% necessary. I kind of interrupt, interrupted you and I want to hear what you're no, going to no, say. No, no, it's, it's fine. I, I like that you're, that you're, you know, you're, you're also kind of feeling what I'm, I'm saying too, because it's been a big, I mean, I work with, I have the privilege really of working with so many people and the moment we see something, you know, that's a little off, we go right into, but my mother, but my father, but my brother, but yeah. my neighbor. And, you know, so we're so at this point, you know, trained to go back and connect the dots. But I, I like to tell people that healing is the domain of the past. Very important to go back and do healing work. We're not doing a, a bypass on the healing work that needs to be done. But transformation is the domain of the future. And if you want to radically change any area of your life, you want to be looking first and foremost at the future that you're standing for and then ask yourself, you know, what's the inner development, the intrapersonal skills that I missed when I was young? And I'm missing the reason why we're duplicating patterns is because we are missing certain capacities and skills. It's not because we're trying to endlessly heal some, you know, something. I, I, I always tell people, say, well, yeah, we do that because it's we're healing ourselves. I think, well, whenever I duplicated a past pattern, I, it did not occur as a healing experience for me. But, you know, but certainly as an opportunity for for me to to do some real self-reflection on how I'm the source of it, what's missing in my own development that would make all the difference moving forward. That would be great. So 
if we want to take a stand for a future that we've never had to, to create, if you've always struggled with money, to have financial freedom, if you've always struggled in relationship, to have happy, healthy love, if you've always struggled with addiction that you keep relapsing into, to not just be sober like white-knuckling it or abstinent white-knuckling it, but to actually be kind of living outside of the addictive story, free and not worried about relapsing, that has to do with certain inner skills and capacities and how we're able to recognize our own inner experience, name our feelings, hold our feelings from a deeper center, self-soothe. I know that was what my food addiction was about. I didn't really have a mother who nurtured me, and the food was my mother's substitute, And I didn't because I didn't have the internalized mother wasn't really about my mother, mother. It was that I never learned the skills of managing my internal emotions. So the moment I would have a feeling I would want to eat because I had almost no container for my inner experience. I also didn't know the skills of relationship, intrapersonal skills. I didn't know how to keep relationships healthy. I didn't understand the skills of negotiation the skills of conflict resolution, where you can deepen the relationship rather than hurt the relationship by engaging conflict directly. I certainly didn't understand healthy boundaries or the ability to say no and still imagine that someone would still love me if I wasn't giving everything away, right? So all those things I had to learn so that I could also have a relational field where love was a source of well-being and comfort and support and inspiration as opposed to anxiety, right? So we all, we're all very savvy about, oh, I have anxious attachment, I'm avoidant or some combination of the two. But, you know, I'm not necessarily one for labeling unless you also know the treatment for something. And the treatment for these these psychological labels that we give ourselves, which on some level is very helpful to understand our own tendencies. But then we stop at this sense of powerlessness. Like, what do I do about that? Will I ever have healthy relationship? And frankly, a lot of the experts were amazing in what they've brought forward, but they haven't quite figured this part out because what they say is, well, if you have a relationship with someone who has secure attachment then you're going to be able to model after them and become more secure, which made me tear my hair out because I was like, well, if I could have a relationship with someone who had secure attachment, I wouldn't be reading your book in the first place. I would just be <laughs> like, that just seemed like miles away from what I could possibly manifest. So I think there's a lot that we can do when we identify the skills and capacities that we're missing uh, and that kind of set us up for addictions because addictions are like, you know, they're a container and they're a way of, you know, they're a substitute for mother. And, and uh, until we learn the skills of learning how to do that on our own for ourselves, we're going to be very vulnerable. But I, I'm going to say something controversial now. I think we can outgrow addiction. I think that once we have addictions, you know, when you get stressed and you're really overextended, you might have a tendency to go back into that old, 
you know, story in your body. And it does live in the body. It's in the somatic field. But when you really grow your capacity to love yourself and to love others, to be loved by others, you do kind of outgrow it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of every a lot of things that you're you're saying in very in you know detail to me what I what came to mind is that it's really just understanding the truth of what we are. Yes, because all of these. Understanding the past is really understanding what, how that ref- related to what we really are, you know, and the things that we're missing perhaps is because it, often we we just not aware of all of what we are, and are playing in a lim- with limited, you know, our hands behind tied behind our back almost, and living into the future is in a sense opening up to more of what we what we are, so that those. That environment, those qualities can be seen. Well, I was just going to say because, to, similar to what we talked about before we even started, this all for me comes back to the idea of authentic love or authentic loving, as almost synonymous with what we are. I mean, I was just wondering whether that resonates with you. Well, so I have a whole process that's kind of included in the work that I'm doing with the possible self of the future that's called uh, the true love awakening. Sometimes I call it the true you awakening because the old stories that actually get in the way that we, when we get triggered, we kind of drop into a younger version of ourselves. We all kind of know this and we react from there in ways that create a problem in our relationship that limit our relationships and can be quite painful and you know certainly we've all done that or we've all had that done and basically what we're talking about is learning the ability to press the pause button when we get triggered and instead of act from that center to even notice where we're activated in our bodies and see what the I am is inside of that. What are the assumptions we're in? I'll, I am alone. Everyone's going to always leave me. Or I'm invisible and no one cares about me. I'm not safe. Other people have ill intent. I'm not wanted. Others always reject me. There's some story in the body. And if you say it as an I am, others are. And then you say to yourself, sweetheart, how old are you? Right. How old are you? Oh, you're five. Well, let me tell you, sweetheart, you're not alone. I'm right here with you and I love you. And then I speak my power statement that I said to you before. You were not born to be alone. You have the power to create, you know, deeper relationships, to learn how to do that. And then now I'm in a more fluid self. See, before I was in a fixed self, that four, that five-year-old narrative doesn't ever really change. It's almost like, you know, the rims of a tree trunk. You know, that rim is just there. So if you go in and you start identifying with that, you're going to behave in a way that generates that reality. If you can intercept the process and bring a deeper sense of a, a more integral perspective of who are you really and what's really possible right now. Well, actually, breakdowns are not such a bad thing between myself and other people because 
they're an opportunity to deepen the connection, to have more real authentic love, to grow in that direction. Let's engage this directly, right? So that's a more fluid sense of self. And you really have to be in this fluid sense of self in order to live into the possible self of your future. So that's how we break it down. That makes so much sense. How can you live into the future if, which is a, a growth in yourself if you're not fluid? It's, it's true because in the fixed self, there is no growth. That's why there's no mm-hmm. possibility. Because if we're mm-hmm. overly identified with that story, we're overly identified with the wounded self, that which I actually call the traumatized self versus the true self. Mm then we feel like, well, it's not possible for me to have healthy love. How possible for other people, but not for me. I'm alone or I'm not good enough. It's another mm. major one mm. that most of us mm. share. And, and they're, really, they're really kind of in the moment, they're really just thoughts, aren't they? Thoughts that have feelings, that that's the experience of it. If you really stop and experience in the moment, there's these thoughts, I, I'm i alone, I, it's not possible for me to have love, and there's these feelings going on as well. Yeah. I mean, I think Wayne Dyer really used that and popularized that it's a thought. I, I don't feel a thought in my body, so I don't re- use that word in particular because I like to use language that I can feel in my body because all of these beliefs live in the body. And anytime I get abstract, which is why I'm not really crazy about, oh, I'm love avoidant, because it doesn't give me access to anything to actually do it differently. But I think the word that works for me is it's a narrative. It's the story of who I am. You know, little Kathy was born to a teenage mother who was resentful that she got pregnant. It was before abortions were legal. She had to get married to a man she didn't love. He treated her poorly. He left. So little Kathy had a a negligent mother, a narcissistic mother, an absent father. Who is that girl? And how does she grow up? And what is she worth? What is she worthy of? What's possible for her? And inside that story, not a whole lot is possible. So the crumbs of a married man's attention or the crumbs of an active alcoholic or the crumbs of a, you know, someone who, you know, has multiple people he's sleeping with, but then he's going to give me his attention for five minutes and me settling for that because she's starving, right? She's so impoverished that she's starving. That story is that story. And it will get triggered when somebody dismisses me, disappoints me, and I'm right back there. I'm her again. And I'm at the threat of I'm not going to get what I need here. And I have to learn how to wake myself up. You know, there's also a beautiful body of work that many of us are doing around healing our partners of these core woundings. But I want to just say about that particular way of working is that until I am responsible for my own traumatized self and my own interpretive lens and can create a relationship with myself that gives me a foundation to work that through and to disidentify with the traumatized self, no one will be able to do that for me. And in fact, I will hold them hostage 
if they think that they're the ones supposed to, because I'll just, you know, forever, you know, need more attention, forever need more reassurance in a way that's kind of a ball and chain because it's a bottomless pit. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. But how do you, I mean, I'm really interested in the what you mentioned about considering it as a narrative. Um, is that, I'm just trying to work, see why you prefer that. Is it because of the, because it's a more fluid understanding of the evolution or the you as a, a, a changeable growing person? Well, that's a good question. No one's ever asked me this, but I never had the conversation about thoughts versus narrative either. I guess my interpretation of thoughts is just like thoughts are out here and one just kind of goes in and one kind of goes out. But truthfully, the narrative is quite specific to my in, my experience and the story that I crafted about myself and my place in the world inside of my very young developing psyche and sense of self, right? So if, if these things, these narratives are created when we're in the womb, when we're an infant, they're pre-verbal mm. even. They're yeah. just, they kind of yeah. live as imprints, but they're stories that are quite specific to me and quite tenacious. So they're not just, and I think that there are things in the collective conscious as well, but thoughts mm. is too impersonal for me. I think these stories are actually quite personal they live as very personal narratives and that's why I, I almost like the Joseph Campbell way of looking at it like the heroine's journey what was my gift to give as a soul why did I even incarnate it comes into my whole sense of purpose for having chosen to be born like ah you know very painful to live through that and I'm you know on some level, look, see, see, on some level, we're always going to be healing when we weren't loved as children or we weren't given the kind of safety, security, validation, holding that we really needed. We might always be healing that. <clears throat> you know, you might have worked that through, you know, with one of your parents. You might have forgiven them. You might have cried tears as adults together. But there's still the four-year-old who was kind of standing on the front porch waiting, waiting, waiting for her father who never came. She's still in my body. And I have to learn how to hold her when she comes up and say to her, I've got you now. It's okay. I've got you. And you are worthy of someone showing up for you. It's a very multidimensional way of viewing yourself because there's the, the you, the adult, you present now, yeah. nurturing the f four-year-old you. I was just thinking how multidimensional that, and then there's many other aspects too, like you said, rings of a, a tree. I will tell you, I, I think one of the things that we psychotherapists are missing the mark on is that we are the ones doing all the holding and containing in the room instead of actively teaching our clients how to hold and contain their own inner experience. I imagine that that's really, in the end, I mean, I was thinking about in Jung's individuation. I don't know if that's something that you're interested in, but it seems to me that's the end goal of psychotherapy, that the patient does end up. In fact, I remember at the end of my psychotherapy, when, when, I, when she was, you know, kind of saying this is coming to an end and I, and I was hanging on <laughs> but 
she one of the things that she said was that when this does come to an end over the next few years, all of the things that I've her, her she has been holding will come back into me. And that was just an idea at the time, but I experienced it to be very true. And so all of these aspects of just feeling more of your myself, more con- together, more real, connected, all the, all the things that we talked about over those years all seemed to, you know, co- coalesce back into me. And I also have heard people say this when their mother dies or their father dies or someone that when, and I think, and this is just what I thought at the time, I don't know how true it is, that, that the same process is happening, that what was being held by your mother or friend or significant person then is actually then almost transferred, you know, or, or, or fully takes up, you know, is, remains with with who's here. What do you think about that? Well, I I like that you're bringing this up. And I think that that's, I remember my therapist doing the same. And I had the same experience as you, where, yes, I did internalize that therapist and the wisdom. I think what I was referring to in the moment, so now I'm listening to what you're saying, I'm thinking, wow, how is that relevant to this, what I've been asserting, and I should maybe revisit this. But I'm what I'm talking about is when I am disappointed or devastated. And I go to, you know, a therapist who's then working this through with me and they're listening from a very deep center and counseling from a very deep center that begins to calm me down. There's a way that we can actually teach that skill. It's one of the things I I teach people. And it's based on actually Stephen Gilligan's work in self-relations therapy. He's brilliant. I don't know if you know Stephen. He's not he's not a well-known what's that? <laughs> oh, he's so wonderful. He's not a super well-known person. He's an extraordinary person. So the the practice that I've developed really influenced by Stephen and his work with self-relations is the ability that when you get overwhelmed with emotions when you're triggered instead of you know picking up the 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 chocolate the 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 beer or the phone to give someone a piece of your mind whatever it is instead of going right into action you just take a deep breath and you say to yourself sweetheart what are you feeling what are you feeling Catherine what are you feeling I feel enraged And then you mirror it back. I can see, sweetheart, that you're really enraged right now. What else are you feeling? So you're not fixing any feelings, but you're labeling them. You're holding them. And when you feel like you've named all of them, and usually, you know, there's at least six to eight happening. They don't even seem compatible. I'm really happy and I'm really sad at the same time. You just be with yourself and then you can switch into, and what do you need? What do you need, sweetheart? Right, so there's different places to go. You can go into, I can see that you need. You also can go into what are you assuming is true that's informing your feelings and needs. Oh, I can see that you really are assuming that you'll 
always be alone, that no one will ever love you, or that you're assuming that just because he didn't call, he doesn't like you. Okay. We don't actually know what's happening. We certainly don't know how he feels. He's not expressing how he feels. Right. So then you start to contain yourself in that moment. And I think that that's a true life skill. And I learned, I really started relying on this with um, when I was training my conscious uncoupling coaches because the clients that they're working with to bring people through the conscious uncoupling process, you know, they're only sitting with that person maybe one hour a week. But that person's on a roller coaster and that person's being hit with tidal waves every day, despair, hope, rage, you know, uh, you know, confusion, fear, you know, just one after the other. And it's not enough. They're not going to live with that person. It's not enough just once a week to be holding that person. So it's more like teaching this as a skill so that we can navigate life from the wisest parts of ourselves, from the truth of who Fantastic. we are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really, really important, I think, to be able to to sit still when all of these feelings, thoughts, turmoil is going on. And it's different, Michael, than, than feeling your feelings. Uh-huh. It's different than feeling your feelings. It's holding and containing them it's it's really based on the it's based on steven's work that's based on um the studies done at ucla called around affect labeling which is a fancy word of just giving a name to your feelings so they did this study where they were working with images on a computer screen and basically they were monitoring people's heart rate and blood pressure and all sorts of somatic responses and then they put up pictures of people who were experiencing very kind of negative things so you know someone who was horrified or terrified or enraged and they're just you know kind of monitoring people's somatic responses to this the next set of pictures they had though were the very same images but they had a word horror terror, rage, fear, and the the same picture with the word that described it. And what they discovered is that when you put a word with the experience, the feeling, that we are much less reactive. So the body had, the symptoms were much, much less. So So is this what you mean by by holding it is is, is so you're kind of just holding it from the witness part of the self people people who meditate have a better handle on this initially because they understand that there's a part of them that's witnessing the breath that's witnessing the stillness that's witnessing their thoughts go through their mind right so that witness self is what we're working with but we all have access to it even those of us who've never meditated and the way we you know, the way we differentiate from the self and the body is once you ask yourself, sweetheart, you address yourself, sweetheart, now you're in the witness self immediately. Sweetheart, what are you feeling? It's different than what what am I feeling? 
it's a way of differentiating the witness from the part of you that's having that experience. And so that's what I mean by holding contain, if we're going to really break it down, you know. Yeah, yeah, I see. But it begins to de-escalate the intensity of the negative feelings such that you can actually get back into the driver's seat. You're less reactive. You know, you can get out of the amygdala part of the brain, which wants to go right into action and bypass thought or consequences. You know, this is when we, you know, throw bleach on all his suits because we're so mad, you know. (laughs) Okay. So we really use this in conscious uncoupling a lot. I'm glad I missed out on that one. (laughs) (laughs) No one's ever going to want to do that to you, Michael. I can tell you that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I'd have to um, just wear something else, I suppose. (laughs) I guess you do. I just noticed the time, and I I actually need to wrap now. Yeah, yeah, well... I was just um, kind of aware of that too, but I was thinking maybe we could um, just make one more comment around if we could, because you've gone in so many places and I've just, to be honest, I've just been trying to keep up. No, it's great. I, it, it's really, it's really been really interesting, like a, you know, a very colorful conversation and I'm sure I'm going to re-listen to it and and see how everything flowed together but it seems to me that you know you're you've been very generous in sharing your personal journey and and then it manifesting as con- you know conscious uncoupling and uh, calling well, in the calling one. in the one yeah I mean I I actually created a wonderful marriage and um was a really lovely man, and we had a child together. And uh, for many years, we were we were doing really well. I changed drastically, and it kind of changed in a way that created two separate directions for us. And at, after a decade of marriage, we decided to divorce. And uh, of course, that was. A problem for a lot of people because a lot of people assumed that calling in the one was about staying with someone forever. Uh-huh. And um, and then I created this the new teaching, conscious uncoupling, and that gave a, a different kind of context to it. And Mark and I are are very we still exchange Christmas gifts and we still have family powwows with our daughter who's now in college. So we're his his girlfriend is darling and. Anyway, we, we, so we make it work. We have what I call a happy even after family. And, um, (laughs) (laughs) and then, and then, and now I'm repartnered. I have a lovely man. I have this picture right here. This is Michael. Oh, beautiful. Very, very, very happy. Yeah. Oh, that's very special. I mean, he must, he must be a very special person. He is a very special person. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so all of this to me is—it's um, all about growing, and 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 I can sense that with everything you're doing, it's it's also about loving, isn't it? Yeah, love is. Uh, I mean, years ago, I recognized that the north star for me always was going to be expanding my capacity to love and be loved, and to help others do the same. So. 
to devote myself to the collective expansion of all of us. Really, I'm quite ambitious for all of us to expand our capacity for love. And uh, and that's what my life is about. And that is what gives, that is what keeps me on track. And that's what I hold myself accountable to. So even when I got divorced, I said, okay, let's do this in a way that is characterized by generosity and forgiveness and kindness and learning our lessons and self-responsibility and doing it better next time around. Mm, beautiful. I, I feel really enriched by our conversation. And, I, and like I said, I I know that I, I'm going to need to go back and re-listen to it um, because there's so much here. And so I thank you so much for spending your time and you're so generous with, you know, sharing everything that you're you're doing and uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to follow follow what you do and and hopefully we'll meet again. Thank you, Michael. I hope so. Lots of love to everyone. Thank you. Mm-hmm.